Welcome to Empowered Thinking at Play, a podcast which explores the elements of feeling empowered and how we can get more of that feeling into our lives. I'm your host, Kim Nelson, writer, meditation teacher, confidence coach, and someone with a very curious mind. And so I want to know, how are people bringing more action into their lives after the events of this year? which, let's face it, has made many of us feel disempowered. And so I particularly want to know how people are re-emerging with a stronger mindset and what skills have been fundamental in doing that. This is a lively and thought-provoking perspective on lessons learnt. Enjoy. My guest today is Sean McDonald, a former pro cyclist and founder of the Vida Asana School of Yoga in Costa Rica, a place I can highly recommend as I stayed there three years ago. Sean is, I have to say, one of the best storytellers I have met and should have his own TED talk on taking risks or at least on daring to dream. He places his desire to frequently take risks on not being afraid to be vulnerable And when it comes to failure, well, it's been his biggest opportunity for growth. This year has been particularly hard for him as a retreat owner, as the pandemic happened just as he was remodelling the place. But despite this, he's remained remarkably upbeat and learned to focus more on being present rather than worrying about the future. He offers his tips on what to consider if you're thinking about taking a risk or at least taking a big decision. And what's been key for him is staying resilient when he's failed. I also love his definition of what empowerment is to him. He was kind enough to be interviewed twice for this podcast because the last time the recording turned out to be barely audible due to the 6,000 mile distance and Sean based in the jungle basically. We had a better connection this time at least. Hey! Hey! Hope that works. It works. Sorry about the delay. Amazing. I was just thinking, you are one of the best storytellers that I know. I think oh, you're so you. good at telling a story. So, yeah. That is part of how I try to tell a story is, is as if it was here and now, you know, as if it's not this happened in the past. This is here. This is here and now. So I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because... Right or wrong, it means at least I'm accomplishing what I set out to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I wanted to talk to you about being a risk taker because mm. um, you obviously seem to know a not a lot, uh, quite a lot about risk taking. And I wondered if you've always been a risk taker. I think probably. I think to some extent. Um, and maybe my reasons behind it and how I go about it have maybe changed from, from, from when I was little. I think maybe when I was little, I was, you know, I came from a family with a lot of successful people and a lot of really good athletes and people who'd taken a lot of chances or felt like they had. And I guess I sort of, you know, wanted, wanted to be part of that and didn't want to be left out and maybe a little bit attention seeking, but I think, um, Maybe just that, this is another thing I've been learning a lot with time during the pandemic. I've been listening to uh, a lot of books on tape and doing a lot of reading. And one particular author that I've 
spent a lot of time listening to is a woman called Brene Brown, who's uh, yeah. she's a shame researcher, right? And so I've been learning a lot about shame and vulnerability. And I think, I think that's what it is. My ability to take or decisions to take risks have often come from, uh, from that I've been sort of blessed to always sort of be able to be vulnerable. And, um, you know, one thing she talks about a lot about is that, you know, most people kind of clam up and get, you know, we get afraid and we sort of go into our cocoon when we're afraid to be vulnerable, when we're feeling shame or whatever it might be. And, but there are this subset of people who go the other way. They sort of like overshare and almost present as overly vulnerable. And I think I fall into 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 that set and i think so from there it's just maybe it's easier to learn how to to protect yourself a little bit more because you don't protect yourself enough than it maybe is to learn how to open up when your nature is to be protective so i think i've just been sort of sort of blessed and and lucky in that way and i've also ever since i was sort of little you know i've always been handsomely rewarded like my my risks have almost invariably worked out for me and to the extent that maybe a couple times they haven't i've always been lucky to have you know the support system i needed at the right time to to sort of help me to help me overcome whatever it might have been and then uh once or twice I have had things fail for me where I really didn't have the support system I needed. And I think from those, you actually, you sort of learn more anyway. So I think those, you know, the, the big failures have sort of been the, the biggest opportunity for growth and learning and healing. So I just think um, you get in this loop of, wow, taking chances is, is rewarding even when it, even when you fail massively. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where once you start doing it, it's it's easier to keep doing it. Yeah. Do you think a lot before you take a risk or do you, is it more of an instinct? You know, I think um, I've done better when it's been an instinct. I've done better when it's been an instinct. I am, I do definitely have a, a tendency at times to fall into an a really, really overthinking, overanalyzing, perfectionist sort of a mindset. And I think we know research tells us that is, that's from trauma or shame or something of that nature. And when I've done that, I can get a little bit paralyzed, but the, 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 the big successful chances have all been sort of fundamentally instinctual. And um, in times of crisis, even before I really knew what a mantra was or before I was exposed to yoga or even thought in these sort of terms or realized why my, I always sort of had what I now say is my mantra is just always go forward on instinct like an ant. So when, when things, you know, if you look at an ant, they just do their job. They just go forward. They just trudge forward and they carry the heavy load and they just get whatever they're supposed to get done, done. And, and so I've learned in not that that's how I want to live my life, but in times of crisis, when everything's going wrong, just instead of being paralyzed, just go forward. Even if you don't think there's enough hours in the day, even if you don't think you can, can get to the other end, if your life is 100% terrible and, 
you, you get 10% further ahead. Now it's only 90% terrible and 90% is way better than 100% terrible. So I've been able to just when things go terribly, horribly, miserably wrong, and I can't see that there's possibly a light at the end of the tunnel of in those moments, I'm able to just keep trudging along. And that's, uh, that I think has allowed me to keep taking chances. Yeah, that's nice. So you've never been put off by taking a risk. I mean, I think, um, you know, like I've had, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what happens is when you have a big failure or things don't go as intended and everything feels very rough, you do sort of, I do have a tendency to fall in back into this little bit of a perfectionist and, you know, why didn't I, why didn't I save more and why didn't I listen to people? And, you know, I do have, I'm human and I at times suffer with regret and, you know, I'm sort of having a hard time fighting that right now because, uh, you know, I took a big chance to get the remodel done. And at the end of the remodel, I did a bunch of extra upgrades just because I already had the builder on site. Things were going so well. And I thought, yeah, I know I'm leaving myself incredibly thin fiscally, but hey, I've Having the, I've got this big year in front of me and, you know, I built this place with no loan and no budget and everything worked out and it's just going to continue to work out. So I'll do all these other things. And, you know, now I'm sitting here, we've been closed for five months. We really don't know how it's going to work to get back open. And uh, all of a sudden I'm thinking, boy, you know, if I had looked back at the last 30 years of my life and all the times I could have done a little bit better fiscally and I could be sitting on a pile of money and being here closed with no stress. And instead I'm closed under a ton of stress, but um, also I learned from all those experiences and that's who I am as a person. And, uh, and those are the things that got me here. And maybe if I'd have thought that way and saved and been more careful, I'd be, you know, still living in Pennsylvania, selling software for a living or something else. That's not my calling. And, and I don't feel energetically good about. So, yeah, for the most part, for the most part, it's who I am. And uh, I think I, if I, if I have fear, I have fear of not getting to do the things that I want to do. And my fear of not getting to do the things that I want to do. And my fear of not, you know, not making a difference and not being an awesome dad. And my fear, my fear of not doing, maybe I do have fear and my fear of not doing is bigger than, than, my fear of failure and so I think maybe mm. to the extent that I have fear my fear makes me go try things and so this is very good and I mean I do have healthy fear like I'm the only person in apparently who's ever gone to the skydiving center in Costa Rica and chosen at the last second not to get out of the plane right so um, <laughs> you know I guess <laughs> you know I mean I, uh, I guess you know like I do have like a healthy fear of death. You know? <laughs> so, did, but, did that happen? You, yeah, you were in the plane. Yeah, about two years ago, I was in a plane and you know, I was like literally at the door of the plane. And um, I asked the, the, the guy I was strapped together with to uh, go over something he had told me on the ground was gonna, when we, was going to happen. And I felt like the answer that he gave me right then didn't mesh with the answer he gave me on the ground and led to confusion. And I just decided I wasn't going to jump out of a plane strapped to another individual who had just confused me so oh yeah. good for you and how did you feel when you decided not to do that did you feel that you know guilty perhaps or did you just feel it's the good it decision 
Um, you know, somewhere between humiliation and shame. I think in the short term, I felt a little bit sh- of shame, and and um, and then you know, when I got to the ground, the owner of the hang gliding place came and like just frothing at the mouth berated me because apparently because I was the, I broke his five years of perfect record of nobody ever having not gotten out of the plane and so this was not like I think um that in a way helped me because I didn't feel that I deserved any of that and so that allowed me to get into humiliation instead of shame you know and I think the difference being defined as humiliation you don't think you deserve and shame is when you think you deserve it and as soon as I didn't feel like I deserved it. I was sort of able to, um, you know, I was sort of able to regroup and I was with friends and we went out and we had an awesome lunch and, you know, it was a funny story by that point. And, you know, as, as a dad and a business owner and somebody who has people who depend on them, like choosing not to jump out of a plane when you're confused is, is a healthy and good decision to make. So. Definitely. So yeah. if someone comes to you and they're going to make a big, like make a big risk, what sort of checklist of questions would you advise somebody? Um, uh, it's interesting because one thing, the first thing is just to make sure you have somebody, somebody who loves you enough to, to, you know, to tell you the truth and go bounce this idea off of them. And that doesn't mean if they think it's a bad idea that you shouldn't do it, but just somebody who will, you know, sort of tell you the truth about, the potential pitfalls and as much as I I think that's the biggest thing is to have somebody you can really really go tell about your idea um, who doesn't automatically think just like you do who will sort of play devil's advocate for you and be honest with you if it's just you know a really terrible idea and um, I noticed that even though I've historically been very kind of conflict averse in my life and something I've worked on a lot as well much to my benefit but in general that's always something I was able to do so if somebody came to me you know when your friend has a new business idea there's this sort of you know everybody's excited for a friend who has a new business idea so there's this I think tendency to want to tell people that you think it's awesome and it sounds great and you're excited for them and I've always been able if something what sounded like a really terrible idea to me with very low um chance of chance of success I've always been sort of good at telling people you know I I just don't see it like I don't see you know that there's a market for this and and maybe they know better but at least they should you know just to like make sure you have somebody in your life or go seek somebody out people who will give you honest opinions but the important thing is just to make sure you go seek opinions of people who are sort of um also in the game, right? Like, mm. don't, don't go seek the opinions of critics who, who stand on the sideline of life criticizing other people. Go seek the opinions of people who, who, have, who have, whether they've succeeded or failed or whatever it might be, but go seek the, seek the, uh, seek the opinions of other people who take risks. Um, and, uh, and don't absolutely positively on your... Do not listen to the criticisms or the ideas or the thoughts of the critics on the sidelines of life. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that, not that we all have to be risk takers, but um, if you are somebody who's 
who's driven to dare, driven to, to dream, um, really value the opinions of let your shield down when you're talking to other people who are, who are like that and put your shield up when you're being criticized or critiqued by people who would never consider taking a chance. Mm, that's great advice. Yeah. I try to mm. um, fundamentally avoid um, quoting presidents just because I'm not a big fan of authority, but there's, um, I think it's Roosevelt, a really famous man in the arena speech um, where he says, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not the person in the crowd at the arena whose criticism matters. It's the other person bloodied and battered in the arena trying to, you know, trying to win the game. This is the person who's, who's, you know, it's a little misogynistic the way he says it. So I've always tried to look for another example of somebody very awesome and quotable making a similar kind of a statement, but this, uh, but I've had to accept that this is sort of the best version of it till now. And then mm. it was funny when I started listening, when I started listening to Brene Brown, she quotes this speech in all of her books. So I love her so much that it's sort of given me permission to use it, but it's, 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 it's called the man in the arena. It's one of his most famous speeches, but it's just the point that it's not the, not the man in the crowd of the arena. It's the bloody and battered gladiator whose, whose opinion you, you want to seek if you're trying to, to dare to do great things. Mm. Do you feel like you're that man in the arena right now? Mm. Right now I'm a little bit, um, I'm, right now I feel like I'm like the coach has benched me and I'm on the sideline desperately trying to get into the game, you know? So, uh, and that's on me. And I think, you know, I've just, uh, and some of that's because I did choose to use this time to become a little quieter and to be a little more introspective and, to, to do some healing, you know, where maybe I could have sat here and thought about, you know, done a, done more plotting of my next move and thought about what chance I could take in this time. And, uh, and instead I sort of used it as a chance to, to sort of regroup. And, um, I, you know, I found myself uh, unexpectedly single at the beginning of the pandemic. And this is always a little bit of uh leads to a little bit of introspection and a little bit of grief. So I just decided to like move headlong through a lot of grief in my life that maybe I was holding on to. And I think I'm, I think just at the right time, I'm ready to try and do some things again. So. That's good. Can you tell me about your um, professional career as a sportsman? Cause you came to Belgium, didn't you to um, develop your cycling is that correct i mean uh, i always yeah yeah to an extent i always sort of um you know i started racing bicycles when i was 11 or 12 years old and uh it sort of came out of i had always actually to be honest i wanted to play football american football not soccer not what we call soccer and um my mom uh chose not to let me play because she had you know, like heard that a lot of kids suffered traumatic neck injuries and broken backs and things of this nature in uh, in football. And somehow I picked up a cycling magazine and then watched the night, you know, watched the Olympics and uh, sort of uh, fell in love with this sport. And then I, I, um, I ended up with a coach who had spent a significant amount of time racing in Europe and, uh, 
it was always Belgium that sort of appear, appealed to me. Sort of, it felt like the the Belgian riders were a little harder, and and that uh, the weather and it all sort of appealed to my nature of feeling a little bit like an underdog, I guess. But uh, I I think normally I would have had a plan to, you know, keep racing in the U.S. and and I hope that when I was maybe in my early 20s, I would find opportunity to go to Europe. And uh, and then actually when I was, I forget whether I was 17 or 18, but just out of high school, I sort of found myself on the outs of the national team program in the U.S. And I it was clear that I was never going to get on on sort of the the track of riders who they were really friendly with and used a lot. And so I uh, sort of not entirely honestly told my mom that I had, you know, a team to race for in Belgium and everything was set up for me and that all I really needed was this sort of one-way ticket to, to Belgium and everything was going to be taken care of once I got there. And in reality, what I had is, you know, like uh, – the name of a town where maybe there was this guy who might let me rent a room and, and, um, you know, so, uh, my mom said, yes, she bought me a one-way ticket, the old times TWA, I think was the airline. I'd never had a passport. I'd been out of the country and she gave me $300 and, you know, sure enough, I made it to Brussels, took a train to Warham and, um, this rooming house kind of walked, worked out and I walked into a bike shop to try and explain what I was, was there to do. And there was, you know, it was this older guy who I was, especially as I was 17 or whatever at the time, this guy felt like an old man to me who I was talking to, who didn't speak even one word of English, which I'm sure, you know, is quite rare in Belgium. Mm. And uh, had I only read the name of the bike shop on the door before I went in, it was this, uh, it was Armand Desmit, who was like a really, really, quite famous, um, quite famous Belgian rider from around the World War II era. He was like Rick Van Loy's right-hand man. He had almost won the Tour of Italy one year. I think he'd become you know, second or won the Tour of Flanders. I mean, a really well-known, a real icon of the sport, especially in that town because he was from there. And uh, his son was a rider called Tom Desmet, who had just signed a pretty big pro contract in the family blessedly sort of took a shine and a liking to me and um and uh gave me uh, a lot of help and support and just having sort of this very very well respected cycling family on my team definitely on my side and supporting me opened opened a lot of doors and they got me into a club and it turned out while I was still a junior so I was you know racing you know there was some some excitement at this little kid who was still a junior had flown from America to come race bicycles. So, you know, the town, the town was super supportive of me and I didn't know it at the time, but I still have it. I have now it's worse, but I have a movement disorder. that's a little similar to Parkinson's called uh, dystonia. So even back then my hands had a little bit of a tremble to them. So I guess everybody thought I was like, broke and I couldn't afford to eat or take care of myself so I now know that I would get invited every day somebody would invite me to their house for lunch for dinner sometimes I'd be turning away one person because somebody else had already invited me to dinner and I now know actually that the story behind this is that um that everybody just thought I couldn't afford to eat and that's why my hands were shaking all the time (laughs) (laughs) 
and then so what happened then? How long were you in Belgium for? Uh, the better part, I think it was 1988 when I, um, when I first went to Belgium and I was racing there till the, really till, for the most part, till, till 1995. Um, I would come, you know, back to the U.S. or I would go back to the U.S. in the winter time. So I guess I would basically spend like March through October in Belgium for the most part. And then um, in 1991, I met, uh, I met a gentleman named Alain Barreau, who had also been a really, really successful pro. He um, had been, uh, he had been on the team and raced the tour with uh, Freddie Martins and very well known and respected in the sport. And at that point, he was the director of a small sort of half Austrian, half Belgian pro team. And um, I put together an American sponsor. And in 1992, I went to Belgium with uh, three Americans on our own little team, an amateur team. And Alain was the was our director in Belgium. And they became the other family that really, truly um, adopted me as if I was part of their family. And um, so he has a son and a daughter who I definitely refer to. and think of as you know my brother and sister and um, I ended up living with them for a couple of years and then the next year uh, he turned me pro for Varda which was that half Austrian half Belgian team that he had although that was at that point I had like fallen down this flight of steps and hurt my back really terribly so um, I raced on for a couple of years, but I mean, I was very crooked. I couldn't pedal. I was in a ton of pain. So I raced for him that year. I came back and raced for a U.S. team in 1994. And then I went back in 1995 and raced for a team Alain had, which was a half Belgian, half half British team. And um, halfway through the year, it just became like reality that my, my back was just not going to get better. And that racing was kind of over for me. So, uh, Somewhere in the middle of probably like July, August of 1995, I, I, I called my mom. I told her I couldn't do any more. And um, I flew home and that was sort of, uh, you know, that was sort of the end of, for the most part, the end of the cycling chapter of my life. I tried to stage a comeback a couple of years later and my body held up for a little bit. And then I actually got knocked over by a dog on a training ride. And oh. Really never, really, really never the same after that. And, um, 15, 18 years later, we actually found out that um, because we kept looking at my back because the pain felt the same as before, but like when this dog ran me off the road, apparently I had torn the labrum in my hip and nobody noticed it for like 15 or 18 years. And then just by a happy accident, I came to realize I had a torn labrum in my hip in 2013, I think. And uh, I had uh, I had surgery on that and like suddenly it was like having a new lease on life so um thanks to the dog yeah uh, i'd only known 20 years earlier but um uh you know whatever I, i'm grateful i'm super super grateful and uh you know I, I lost 40 or 50 pounds and i realized you know selling software in new york city which it felt like the perfect life for me was a life i really wanted no part of and i uh, had just come to costa rica for a week 
on a, to a little to a surf camp, and um, I really fell in love with it. So I immediately started sort of hatching a plan on on how to get here. And uh, you know, I was really looking for like a one bedroom house, and I kept um, I was going to see if I could work for the company I'd worked for in New York, do remote work for them, like take a pay cut, maybe support some of their other sales reps, and you know, just work half days and then hang out on the beach and sort of live a, a really chill life. And I made a good real estate investment in New York city. So it seemed like, like that was going to be possible if I sold my condo. And, um, but I kept finding this place online, Riverside retreat center for sale, Riverside retreat center for sale. And, uh, I basically emailed the owner and that was Vita Asana. And I basically bought Vita Asana sight unseen, to be honest, over the internet and, um, sort of, of all my risks, that's the big one, you know, and I sort of prayed that I would be able to, uh, to make this idea work. So, and, uh, it has, it has largely, largely, it has largely worked. There've been a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations. I've learned about plumbing and accounting and electrical and building and growing and a million different things. I never thought I would be learning about as I approached 50, but, um, it's been, it's definitely been the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest happening in my life other than of course, becoming a dad. Yeah, well, I can vouch for your retreat being an amazing place. So sure. what's your definition of empowerment? To, to be able to, to move from love and fearlessness. I mean, for me, being empowered is, is not making, is being in a place in your life where you, you're not making decisions from fear and shame, where you're making decisions from, from, from love and from your best self. So it's, so I guess it would also be largely, you know, that quote that um, the, the greatest joy of a lifetime is to know yourself. And so I just think empowerment is, is largely about how close you can get to beautiful blue morpho butterfly just flew by um how close you can get to knowing yourself and and to make decisions from from that and for me something that i've worked a lot on in the last year that's been very empowering for me is just to determine um which critics matter and which critics don't so just to sort of you know not judge people as better or worse than other people but just to really try and um, search out critiques and criticism from other people who are who are like-minded and wholehearted similarly and trying to accomplish similar things to what I am and to not listen to kind of to weed out the criticism of people who have chosen to live their life in a very different way and especially people who are not trying to accomplish anything you know the person who's to listen to people who are in the game as opposed to people who are watching the game. Mm, I like that. Can you think yeah. of the best piece of advice you've been given or one of the best pieces of advice you've been given? Uh, just uh, always give people, and I think I mentioned this, always give people, uh, always operate from the assumption of best intent. So even when, somebody is behaving in a way that you think is absolutely wrong or terrible or even harmful or 
you know, not that we like to use this word a lot, evil to just always assume that everybody at that moment is operating um, from their best intent and doing that the, the best that they can. And, you know, actually this, in some ways it can make, in the moment it can make things harder because, you know, you can be in this situation where, you know, you've got a sibling or a relative who's not showing up for another sibling or a relative and everything's falling on you and giving them the assumption of best intent actually means you have to realize, oh crap, it's always going to be always falling on me. But at least then you can operate in a reality and you can operate without this anger and this resentment towards the other person. And uh, the research is pretty clear now that I've started to think that way and done a little research on it. And the research is clear that the most successful people almost universally operate from giving everybody an assumption of best intent. Yeah, I like that. All right. I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. So just say what's on the top of your head. Okay. Sure. All right. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? Um, I'd like to fly. Oh. I want to learn how to, I don't mean personally, I mean a plane. I really want to learn to fly a plane. Oh, that's a nice one. What famous yeah. person would you like to meet? Do they have to be a, a living or, that or could be, be Gandhi? I mean, I Gandhi, would pick Gandhi. Yeah. I would really like to meet Gandhi. I know that's a cliche, but it's also true. Okay. Uh, what would be the title of your autobiography? Um, it's a little off color, but I have a title of my autobiography. And it's uh, two, two lesbians, a gay, and my grandmother growing up at my house because I grew up with my mom, her wife, my gay cousin, and my grandmother who was dying of lung cancer for an extended period of time. So this has always been my working title in my head. Wow, I would read that. Um, what's your best scar <laughs> you. story? My best what? Scar story. The best scar story? Um, I have, uh, I think would be, the one that, it's funny because it changed last year. So my best scar story is there is a scar across the front of my neck where I had um, two discs replaced in my neck a little over a year ago. And uh, the reason I think it's the best scar story is I have a lot of scars that are sports injuries from things I was doing very for myself. And the injury that caused me to have two discs replaced in my neck was hula hooping with my daughter on my shoulders so I love that I have this one scar that I got having this incredibly amazing once in a lifetime moment with with my daughter as opposed to one I got riding a bike or trying to do a backflip on a bed or you know some other like silly personal physical feat but yeah I was hula hooping at a retreat with Juju on my shoulders and at a certain point my hips and the hula hoop went one way and uh, Juju in my head went the other way so that is the best scar story I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, last one. We're all okay. in the process of becoming. What do you feel you are becoming? Myself, but um, myself. And I mean, and more specifically, alone. You know, I think um, this, this I be, I'm becoming alone. And that doesn't mean that actually makes me closer to the people around me. But I think most of us are really afraid of being alone. And, uh, and this pandemic is 
has allowed me to, to learn how to be alone and to, be, to become myself, who you started as before people and things and circumstances conspired to, to present you with a need to adapt. I think I'm becoming, I'm becoming my own inner child. I like that. I think we become, we do become empowered when we are comfortable with being alone. For sure. It's definitely been that way for me. And it's a, uh, it's nonlinear, right? Like I think that I'm there and then I'll have a night where I'm really, really sad about some people who aren't around. But uh, for the most part I have yeah, become very comfortable being alone. Yeah. Well, I've loved this chat with you. Um, anything that you want to promote apart from your uh, retreat? Um promoting the one thing I would just maybe mention is really cool that or I hope that it's very cool that we've done is um, you know I really I, I as I come here I've become very and thanks for the opportunity um, I've become very sort of uh, engrossed in the concept of community and intentional community and choosing the people that we spend time with and that this is a better way of living than having a bunch of people go to war and then to decide who's the government and inflict themselves on us. So um, my real, if I ever do something else, if I ever dare another time, I would really like to build an intentional community for as many as a thousand people where we sort of live by choice collectively, not by force collectively, but sort of the first step in that is when we did rebuild our housing last year, we created a couple apartments that we now are using almost like a timeshare model. So we've created this opportunity for folks where they can pay a one-time price and then come visit us one week or two weeks a year with food and yoga for life. And we've really, not just for life, I mean, they own it, they can sell it to somebody, they can leave it to their kids, whatever they want to do when they're done with it. But just this really this idea of creating an ongoing, more sustainable community of people that we're gonna get to all see year after year and and grow old with and and know and and that I can then you know that'll bounce ideas and tell me how I could do things better and tell me when an idea I have is terrible and really sort of build a rolling atypical collective of humans who share space every year so these are uh, these are the people I'm calling I'm trying to call and manifest are folks who want to uh, you know want to be a part of of what we're doing here every year for an extended period of time. That's a great idea. Thanks. Finally, you've probably said it actually, but your words to live by. I usually ask this at the end of uh, my interviews, words that you live by or quotes you live by. Um, the one I did, I think my, my personal one that I take credit for myself is, you know, always go forward on instinct like an ant, but um uh, I think this gets me through times of trouble, but, uh, you know, I do, uh, I have really come to use, and I know it's not mine original, but I have really come to use, you know, uh, uh, nothing is permanent. Everything is perfect. And, uh, this is sort of when I really sort, sort of get, uh, when I'm incredibly happy and things are going incredibly well, this is sort of a reminder that, you should truly, truly enjoy that moment because, you know, you're not promised even one more of those. And then on the other side, when things are just really feel 
repairable and you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, just that it's temporary. You know, the good and the bad, the highs and the lows are really, truly temporary. And um, I really, I also have, sounds weird having just said that, I've super come to believe that time is very much an illusion. And so, you know, all of our problems are thinking about the past or worrying about the future. And so I'm, what I try to live by is just to, as best as I can, and I know it's a cliche in yoga, but to just always be right here, right now, you know, enjoying this present moment to its fullest. I have definitely walked on the shoulders of giants or however that expression goes. You know, I've been really, really lucky to have wonderful people who've encouraged me in my life, and I've been lucky to be left on my own a couple of times, and both of these things allow us. So I'm grateful for you, and I appreciate the platform, and the, yeah, anything I can do, I'm always happy to support you as well. Thank you. I loved talking to you about risk taking. I've learned a lot today. So, uh, and uh, is your daughter a risk taker, do you think? Well, she did just learn to ride a bike and I didn't learn to ride a bike till I was seven and she's six. So as this has been a big part of my life. I've taken this as a little bit of that, but I do think in general that, um, that she's, I do think she's a risk taker and I, I'm, very consciously not I'm very conscious in trying to just make sure that she feels safe and secure and I think that if you you know if you want your kid to take risks when they're older I think you have to raise them shame-free and and feeling safe and secure because feeling safe I think is allows us to make to take good risks risks are great but we don't need to take but we want to take the best risks, right? We want to take the best mm. risks. And I think if you feel safe and you're coming from a place of strength and you really know who you are as a person, you're going to take the best risks and you're going to be resilient when you fail to not, you know, not think, see, see, I should have never taken this risk, you know, because if you take risks, you're going to fail, probably going to fail more than you succeed. Or, and who knows what's a failure and what's a success, but things aren't going to, aren't going to end up as you planned much more often than they are going to end up the way you imagined. And I think the big thing is your ability to, to dust yourself up and, and say, I learned from this and I'm going to use it to try again, as opposed to I'm never going to try anything again because it didn't work out. And just to add, if you are interested in finding out more about Sean McDonald and Vida Asana School of Yoga, you can check out his website, which is vidaasana.com. You can also find Vida Asana on Facebook and Instagram. And also, if you fancy empowering yourselves a bit more, you can find out about my online workshops, which is at mindfulthinkingatplay.com. Until next time.